0: Take your copy of the Bible and turn to Isaiah 41. Isaiah chapter 41, starting in verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east? whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from their beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor. Everyone says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil. Saying of the soldering, It's good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you. You shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not. You worm, Jacob. You men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing threshing sledge, new, sharp, having teeth, You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord. The Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, pool of water, and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive, and I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, and they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this the Holy One of Israel has created. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things that they are that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you're nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay, who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say, he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there's no one. Among these, there is no counselor when, who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their mental images are empty wind. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give understanding and insight, for we wish to believe your word, but we need to understand it in order to believe it. And we ask that your spirit would give us faith for Christ's sake, amen. You're probably familiar with the phrase, the only things certain in life, or only things certain in life are death and taxes, right? Uh, attributed to Benjamin Franklin, probably not original to him, it's uh, written in a letter as he was talking about the Constitution and saying that it looks like they had established something with permanency, they had written a constitution that would kind of stand the test of time. But even as he acknowledged that it looked like it would stand the test of time, he knew, only a handful of things will, indeed, stand the test of time that are guaranteed. And certainly not the Constitution, actually. Maybe we're already seeing parts of that, I'm not sure. But instead, death and taxes. Now, those of us that perhaps are a bit more grim, a bit more cynical, might say also that we should have added to the list suffering, and not just death and taxes, but the process of both, right? Suffering that leads to death, taxes really producing suffering. Uh, It's a part of what it really kind of means to be human, living in this time, the time between the fall and the second coming, a life that's marked with difficulty, And some of those difficulties are rather small, inconveniences that annoy us or drive us slightly crazy. Some of those difficulties are quite large. Time spent in the hospital, betrayal by friends, heartache that seems to be a wound that can never heal. It's just too big, too great, and too grand. And there is... Definitely, most certainly, there is the temptation for the Christian to grow, we might say, a bit pessimistic or cynical, to grow a bit grim, depressed and overwhelmed, to see the certainty of death, to see the certainty of suffering, even maybe the certainty of taxes, and to grow kind of despondent or discouraged. Really, that probably would have been kind of the case for Israel at this point in the book of Isaiah. Really, the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah are largely focused around a grim prophecy of destruction. God's people have not been walking with the Lord. God's people have not been obedient to the Lord. Their work and worship has largely been devoted to themselves and not to the living and true God. And so he has over and over and over and over and over again explained to them that judgment is coming, that destruction is coming, the northern kingdom first and the southern kingdom second, but eventually both nations would be taken off the map. God's discipline to his people would be so comprehensive. So complete and total that the nation of Israel, that which seemed certain, I mean, not even that many generations ago, that which seemed to be kind of unconquerable, God's nation would be wiped off the map. And interestingly, the Lord has, uh, in a variety of uh, means, a variety of methods, with a variety of illustrations, kind of impressed upon the people of God the seriousness of that coming destruction, promising sieges, promising suffering, promising all of the misery of a nation that will be eventually destroyed. But even as he has held up that lesson for them of the suffering that comes from sin, he has now turned to the words of comfort. The words designed to heal the wounds that are coming, designed to heal the hurts that they will experience. And you can imagine the great need for it, right? There is probably no greater curse than, than to know the future but not really ultimately be able or willing to change it. I mean, if we're going to be honest, most of us, I mean, okay, maybe when we were kids and imagined being superheroes, we thought for a brief moment that it would be fun uh, to know the future, but then as you kind of grow in maturity and grow as an adult, you think, what a horrible curse that would be, wouldn't it? To know how bad a thing would hurt before you have to face it. To know how dark the days would be before you have to live them. To know how difficult the path would be before you have to walk it. Indeed, one of those great mercies the Lord gives us in difficulty is ignorance. That we don't know how hard it is, really, until we're on the other side. And can kind of look back and go, oh, that was awful, I don't want to do that again. But thus far in the book of Isaiah, it's been really, in essence, him explaining to them how awful it's getting ready to be. And you can imagine how terrible that would be. To be staring down the barrel of the the judgment of God, the discipline of God. And to think how awful it's going to be. So in chapter 41, he gives comfort 40, it begins, 41, continues, comfort my people, comfort my people, comfort my people. And at some point, you would think that the average Israelite would have to say, well, I mean, how am I know? How do I know? As we're in process of being invaded or being carted off to another land, as we're in process of being enslaved or tortured or tormented, how do I know that God loves me when bad things happen? How do I know that God loves me when bad things happen? And chapter 41 really addresses that question, provides a multitude of answers, and interestingly, I love how the Lord does this, he doesn't just kind of pat his people on the back and say, there, there, it'll be okay. He doesn't say, kind of, buck up, kiddos, it'll be better tomorrow, Right? He doesn't just say, well, go eat a sandwich, you'll feel better once your blood sugar's better. He actually goes and engages the theological realities behind suffering, the theological truths behind difficulty. We're not going to examine all of them, but kind of cover briefly some of them. Verses 1 through 4 is where we see his first kind of theological answer. How do I know that God loves me in the middle of difficulty? He I mean, begins, really, it's kind of courtroom language here a little bit. It's a, an accusation against the enemies of God. Listen to me in silence. Oh, said time to, time to stop talking. Listen to what God has to say. Uh, this is the language of the big God, the great God, the living and true God, the mighty God. Now then be quiet, then everybody come in and we're going to have a conversation together. Let the enemies speak, then we will talk. Who is it that has raised up, verse 2, one from the east? Right? Get my directions backwards. This is here, speaking of Cyrus, the king who will eventually come and invade and take over all of the lands that are getting ready to be taken over by Assyria and then ultimately Babylon First mention of Cyrus, he'll show up again in uh, just a handful of um, chapters down the road, but he is the one that's being raised up to be the king who's victorious over all in this region. It's as if victory is kind of raised up for every step from everywhere he goes. Everything he's going to touch, he's going to be victorious over. Nothing will stand in his way. In fact, he makes his enemies like dust before him. There is no threat to his path in verse 3. He is the great and mighty king, King Cyrus, king of the Persians. And interestingly, verse 4 is where the turning point happens. Who is it that has kind of made this king happen? This king that's coming that's going to conquer the remnants of the Assyrian Empire is going to ultimately uh, conquer uh, what's left over the Babylonian. Who is it that's raised up the great and mighty King Cyrus, the most powerful king on the planet at the time? Who is it? Was it Cyrus's father made some good political decisions? Is it it's Cyrus himself possessing a great military mind or political mind? Where does his victory originate from? And interestingly, what's the Lord's answer? I. I, the Lord, the covenant-keeping God, that's his covenant name, Yahweh, the first and with the last, I am the one who is responsible for the raising up of a pagan king that's going to destroy pagan nations that's going to even further, in some sense, participate in the destruction of the people of God and in some sense, their restoration. This is a theological answer for difficulty. you think, well, I I don't understand how that's a theological answer. Well, the Lord is actually, he's making a profound statement here. All actions originate in heaven. All actions originate in heaven. Everything originates in heaven. By that, meaning that the Lord is the the primary, the original, the first cause of all actions. Everything begins with him. Now, in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite glory, goodness, and grandeur, he's able to be the originator, the first cause of all of history, but without being responsible for sin. He didn't create evil. He's not responsible for evil, but he is Wonderfully wise and powerful in using even secondary causes, using people, using evil things to do wonderful things. He uses the the sin and misery and kind of dreadful realities of our world to accomplish his purposes now, in some sense we kind of often like, well, I, I get that kind of conceptually, right? I mean, the gospel is preached by ministers of the gospel. All ministers of the gospel are sinful. So he's, he's using sinful things to accomplish holy purposes. But honestly, that's a truth that we like to think about when something doesn't hurt. That's a truth that we like to think about when, when things are easy, when they feel good. That's not a truth that we like to think about while the knife is lodged firmly in our back. When the betrayal is still fresh, when the hateful words still ring in our ears, when the prognosis is given by the doctor and it's scary, When the body begins to break down, it's so easy for us uh, to kind of say, well, all things originate with God. He is the one who is in charge of creation and His perfect plan. it's easy for us to say that until it gets hard and it hurts until it begins to cost us something. Now, it's interesting how much this is kind of a reoccurring theme in the ministry of Jesus as he begins to explain kind of all of the world around, even in his own ministry, he is very quick and very clear into saying, look, all things originate from God. He is the sovereign. He is the creator. He is the one who has ordained and order all things. In fact, actually, interestingly, that's even part of the prayer that he taught us to pray. Hallowed be your name your kingdom come, right? Your your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That that, that whole idea that you, God, our Father, are sovereign over all of the realities of the world and it's your will that's going to be done. We pray for your will to be accomplished in this place. That should, in some sense, give us a bit of comfort because it does mean that when we interact with difficulty, When we interact with pain, when we interact with heartache or betrayal or hurt or difficulty, it it is comforting to know that it's not a surprise to God. Because even that very pain originated in heaven itself in His perfectly ordained plan. I mean, if we really wanted to kind of be persnickety about it, we could say that it really originated prior to creation itself. When God himself sat down three persons in the Trinity outside of time and space and energy and matter and planned the entire, ordained the entire path of human history. Ordained the difficulty that you're going through. Now, it doesn't necessarily take the pain away, but it does kind of give a sense of meaning to it. To know that God planned this prior to creation and planned it with a purpose. So that as I hurt or as I weep or as I cry or as I'm angry or whatever it is I experience, I can say that I know the Lord has ordained this for a purpose. For an end, it's designed to do something. It's not just random misery. It's not just bad luck. It's designed difficulty. I love how we even get to see Jesus interacting with this concept in the garden and as he's quickly approaching the cross he knows again he knows the difficulty that he's about to endure he's studied the scriptures better than anybody else he's read them more fully than anybody else he's uh, read them with an unfallen mind and the full anointing of the holy spirit he actually understood what would take place on the cross that he would go and he would suffer the fullness the totality of the wrath of god he knew that which is why you get this kind of wonderful glimpse of a moment of prayer in the garden He's under such grief that his capillaries are bursting. His body cannot contain even the grief that he carries with him. And you can see what a wonderful statement. If there's another way, I'd love to have it. If there's another way to accomplish the salvation of my people, I'd love to do it, but your will, not mine. If there's something that we can do instead of the cross, I'd love to do that but you've brought me to this place for a purpose. The redemption of men and women, boys and girls. I love that Christ is acknowledging that in his very ministry. All actions originate in heaven. Now, God's not responsible for the sin. He uses it for his perfect purposes. Now, uh, Kind of one of the things that often then happens in the midst of difficulty, particularly if it's interpersonal difficulty, if, it, if it's the heartache that comes from relationships or heartache that comes from other people, there's uh, kind of a sense in which we can say, well, okay, I know that God, God's doing this, but at the end of the day, maybe it, it's not fair for the other party. Maybe there's a lack of justice. Maybe they're going to get off scot-free. Look, they did something wrong, and they're not going to get what they justly deserve. How is it that they hurt me, and they're prospering so well? This is not fair. In fact, actually, that's really the next answer that's given verses 5 through 7. These are really hard verses and very complicated, but it, it begins basically to explain what the fallen human heart is going to do. The fallen human heart, as it interacts with difficulty, is going to return to the things that it knows best, that it thinks it can control. It's going to return to idolatry, which may look like it works for a season. Right, the coastlands have seen afraid. They, they, they know the coming of this kind of difficulty is going to happen. The invasion is going to take place. The ends of the earth tremble. They come near. Everyone looking at each other going like, well, we can make it be strong. And then where did it go? Verse 7, I love this. It returns really to idolatry. They don't have a real hope. They don't have a real God. They don't have real truth. So the option that they're left with is some sort of kind of manageable hopefulness and nonsensical answers. Idols. It's an explanation as to kind of what's going to take place as you begin to see difficulty hit in the world is that uh, the world, the unbeliever, will return as a pig to slop, as a dog to its vomit will return to its idolatry, clinging to the ways that they think will save. It won't last in the end, obviously, but at least... They might think it helps for a little bit. My favorite illustration of this, I think is probably one of the most moving parts of the scriptures is in the ministry of Jesus just before he, as he's kind of coming into the city um, before Holy Week and just before that, you have this kind of just brilliant moment where he stops and he looks and he reflects and he weeps. And he says over Jerusalem, oh, would that you, even you, Had known this day that things that make for peace, but right now they're hidden from your eyes. He's looking over a city that's pursuing all of its false gods. It's pursuing all of its coping mechanisms. It's pursuing all of its idolatries. And instead, he says, I wish that you knew what made for peace. Now, again, it's easy for us to kind of poke fun at this because, well, of course, we don't struggle with idolatry at all, right? That's just what the bad people do. But it suddenly begins to kind of step on our toes if you begin to think not of idolatry as like worshiping of obviously false gods, but if you begin to think of it as coping mechanisms. That's actually really probably the better illustration is a coping mechanism. What's happening here is these false Believers, these unbelievers, these non-Christians have interacted with difficulties and they've resorted to things that they think they can control to make themselves hurt a little bit less bad. To make their world feel a little bit less scary. To make themselves feel a little bit more in control. Now, if we were going to be a bit cynical, which I've been prone to be sometimes, and acknowledged kind of, or analyzed, perhaps a better word, uh, analyzed our kind of current cultural moment, we might say really that the American culture currently is largely just an exercise in coping mechanisms. Really, that's what it is. It's an attempt to provide these manageable solutions that make me feel better where I can be in control of something, which is why, parents, you might not want to know this, but the reality of the world today, it's why we have kind of a proliferation of self-harm amongst our teenagers. We've had at this point now for two generations a proliferation of eating disorders amongst our women. It's why we have a proliferation of, um, well, I won't do all of the things that will offend you because the sermon's not done yet, but so many of the kind of psychological realities of our world today are just really honestly coping mechanisms because we don't know how to deal with pain rather than actually dealing with it and addressing it and saying, look, this is something God has ordained for me to go through. We run into something that we think we can control to make it hurt a little bit less bad. So what does it mean to not run? What does it mean to hit pain head on? What does it mean to hit difficulty head on? Well, interestingly, again, the text goes to that Look, verse 7, the nations, they're going to flee to their coping mechanisms. They're going to flee to their idolatries. They're going to flee to the things that they can control. But there's a reality, a truth that's different for God's people. Verses 8 through 13, there's a a great reality that needs to kind of infiltrate our brain. But you, O Israel, you're different. And why are you different? Because you are the people that I have chosen. The offspring of Abraham, my friend. You, whom I chose from the ends of the earth. I called you personally from its farthest corners. God chose you. Now, for many of us, I think probably that's one of those kind of concepts that sits in the back of our brains but doesn't do that much for us emotionally because the vast majority of the time, we make our choices based on hope, right? You go to a restaurant and you choose the food that you're going to eat because you hope that it will be good, Right? You hope that they prepare it well this time. You hope that the flavors are flavors that you like. You you hope maybe your favorite restaurant. You hope that it's the way that you always that it that is prepared the way that it always has been. But you hope you don't know that until you get it. Right? Maybe they overcook it. Maybe they burn the steak. Maybe they leave the pizza in the oven for just a bit too long. You, you don't know. But you hope it'll be good. I mean, even in reality, when we Uh, make the most serious of choices. When we choose jobs, we hope that that's good. But most of us who've been in the workforce for any length of time have had at least one experience where you chose a job thinking it was a good one, and you got there, and it was not a good one. Usually, it's because you thought there was a good boss and a good job description, and you got there, and neither of those were very good. All of us, and again, the older you are in the room, more likely you've experienced where you chose a friend because you thought they were a good friend. Turns out they weren't. May have taken you a couple of years or even a couple of decades to find it out. We choose based on hope. The Lord does not. We hope because we have limited information. We hope because we actually have ignorance. So we're choosing based on ignorance. God is not choosing based on ignorance. He's choosing based on knowledge. Remember, this is where it started. All actions originate in heaven. He's from outside of time and he's all-knowing. So when he chooses, his knowledge is not limited. It's not based on what you will be. It's not based on potential. It's not him kind of, you know, like a, uh, a baseball team hoping in a prospect, like, ooh, this is a top prospect, right? And he might turn out to be a great pitcher. She might turn out to be a great third baseman. No. It's based on his exact knowledge and love. And so often when we think of choosing On God's part, we forget that that language is the language really of like almost of a marriage. It's the language of intimacy and love. It's God knowing his people and loving those people. So when you read this, it's, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen out of the fullness of my love in knowing exactly who you are, knowing every single thing about you, knowing your successes and your failures, knowing the number of hairs on your head, knowing the number of cells in your body, knowing every single foible and failure you will ever make in your entire life, I will choose you. In fact, actually, verse 9, you are the people that I took from the ends of the earth. I've scoured the entirety of the human race, the human existence, over all time and space and locations and people, and I've chosen you based on my love for you. I know you, and I love you, saying to you, you're my servant. I've chosen you. I've not cast you off. Therefore, verse 10, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I didn't make a mistake. Right? We make mistakes when we make choices because we don't have all of the data. Because we don't have all of the information. We choose based on hope, based in ignorance. He's not. So when he chose you and placed his love upon you, it was with perfect knowledge of the exact difficulty you're going through today. So that when you're in the hospital, when you walk the valley of the shadow of death, or when you walk that unlivable situation, you can know God chose you and his love has been placed upon you and it will never leave you. You can't outrun the love of God. That's why kind of Romans 8, one of our favorite chapters in the Bible, right? The one that has the, uh, nothing can separate you from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus, nothing inside of creation, even your own stupid self, nothing can separate you from the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. But we forget the, the section just prior to that. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Why? For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. It's interesting, that those great promises of care are rooted in God's choice. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't mess up. He doesn't goof up. He chose you and he loves you. Well, you think, okay, well, maybe that, I mean, that, that might help in some sense. And that might give me the big picture, and that might give me kind of the hope, the light at the end of the tunnel, but it might not add any meaning to suffering in the midst of it. Well, interestingly, that's actually addressed next. Right? That all things originate from God, That even our coping mechanisms, those are the things that the unbeliever will result to, resort to, Instead, the Christian will have their mind guarded by the knowledge that God has chosen them in love, but even then, it adds a sense of purpose in the midst of our suffering because it's transformative. That suffering itself is transformative. It's one of the great tools that God uses to make us different. Verses 14 through 16. This one, to me, makes me laugh, actually, the way this is written. Fear not, you worm. <laughs> I love that. It's such a silly phrase. Out of all the things to be afraid, worms would probably be a good thing to be afraid. Right? They're not very knowledgeable. They don't live very good lives, I would assume, in many cases. Uh, you have to get out of the ground every time it rains really hard and then the birds have a feast. And don't be afraid, you worm. Right after God's choosing, I love that. But does it stop with, you worm? Well, no, he changes metaphors, really. Are you worm, verse 14? I'm the one that's going to help you, declares the Lord himself. I am the redeemer who takes care of you, declares the Lord himself. And now, verse 15 and 16, we're going to have a new metaphor, not a worm, but a farm tool. A threshing sledge, right? Think like the giant scythe, maybe, or sickle with new, really sharp teeth. A sickle or scythe is designed now not to cut wheat or grass or hay, but you people of God will be so powerful and mighty and strong that the Lord will use you not to thresh wheat, but to thresh the very mountains themselves. You will be transformed as to be so mighty and powerful in some sense. The mountains will not stand before you. The hills will not stand before you. Nothing will stand before you because of the transforming power of God. In fact, actually, this is the part that's, I think, just the most interesting, is that it's the suffering in some sense that makes you useful. I mean, if we were going to kind of take his metaphor and push it further than he does, it's the suffering that sharpens the edge of the scythe. It's the suffering that makes it uh, able to cut through and be victorious and destructive. It's the suffering that God uses to make different. But the end goal is to not stay the same, but to be made different new, to be made victorious. This is where it's so fun to think about the ministry of Jesus as he begins to speak about the kingdom of God, which is already here, which is already among you. Christ's reign already begun. The moment that he stepped inside time, space, matter, and energy, inside uh, the exact moment he stepped inside uh, the womb of his mother is when his kingdom begins. He reigns on earth, humanly speaking. Right then, he is king of kings and lord of lords, and uh, the king of the Jews. But every time he speaks of his kingdom, one of the recurring themes is that it will be victorious and grow, and nothing you can do can stop that or prevent that. It will be victorious and grow. And then lastly, verses 17 through 20, will be the last part we look at. Is that a reminder That the Lord will be with his people even in the midst of suffering. He finds glory in caring for them. He finds glory in watching over them and providing for them. Verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, their tongue is parched with thirst, I will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare. I will be their provider. I will be the one that takes care of them. Now, we do have to have kind of an aside here. The problem is that our understanding of our needs grossly differs from what the Lord understands our needs to be, right? I understand my needs to be comfort. I understand my needs to be happiness. I understand my needs to be all sorts of things that the Lord himself does not sign up on. So I get cantankerous and grumpy because I don't feel like the Lord is providing for me. But the problem is, is I've got the wrong list of priorities. He's providing the things I ultimately need. And in fact, actually, in some cases, the suffering is the very thing I need. In fact, actually, in some cases, the suffering is the thing that is the gift. It is the blessing. But he loves to care for his people. He loves to provide for them. See, the great reality here is that when we are in the midst of great difficulty, that's when our brain begins to lie to us. It begins to say things, well, maybe God doesn't like you. Maybe he's out to get you. It says things like, well, my pain is too big. Nobody's ever understood pain like mine. You don't understand my pain. My pain's too big. It begins to say things like, well, nobody understands me. Everybody hates me. It doesn't say I'm going to eat worms, but that is usually how the song goes. Our pain becomes kind of dominant in our minds and it it grows and it swells to the point where it overshadows everything. And the interesting thing, Isaiah 41, is the Lord promises comfort. I, I love this. He promises that he's even bigger than that pain so that he's not left you, it's not an accident, and he's right there. And I think, again, a great reminder of that We could go back as we were in the sermon just a moment ago, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, again, is weeping and praying. He's got such grief that, again, his capillaries are bursting. He's got blood coming out. If we were to kind of take all of the rest of our knowledge of the Scriptures away and kind of zoom in into that garden in that moment, we would say if the Lord was providing for Jesus, he'd stop that pain. He'd stop that pain. He would, he would stop the, the, the fear of what's coming. He would stop all of the pain that he's going to have to go through. He wouldn't let him go to the cross. That's what would happen. If God actually loved him, he wouldn't let him go to the cross. And again, what are we declaring in that moment? We're saying pain is bad. Suffering is bad. God doesn't use it anything like that. And what would we be doing, interestingly? Stopping the cross. Because what do we get so short-sighted, don't we? so short-sighted that we begin to forget that the Lord uses all things, even the death of his very son, to redeem for himself a people and to prepare them for the life to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do confess our impatience with difficulty. We are such short-sighted creatures. Thank you that you have not left us and you have not forgotten us. Forgive us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.